inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Katie Anything, I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we have nine questions to get through. And without further ado, let's jump right into them. Now, this first question says, hey, Katie, I usually have therapy on Wednesdays. My therapist is a great fit for me. She has just the right balance of pushing me, but not too hard. And she's picked up on my anxiety cues. My question is, after therapy, and usually Thursday and Friday, I'm often thinking to myself that I cannot wait for my next session, that I have so much to talk about. I forgot to tell my therapist this part of the story or that thing that happened that week. Then come Monday or Tuesday, I'm almost dreading therapy. And I think to myself, maybe I should just stop or I don't really need it anymore. Is this a normal part of therapy or something that I should bring up to my therapist? What do you think should be could be causing this? And this is a great question. And a couple of thoughts. First of all, definitely tell your therapist about it. And a lot of people have this kind of experience and it can go many ways. And even the comments below this question, there were a ton of other examples where someone will think like, oh, I don't really need therapy. And then as it gets closer, like I can't wait for therapy, you know, or they forget to say everything they wanted in therapy. And we can get kind of caught in this cycle. And so what you're experiencing, my guess would be has something to do with the way you talk to yourself about therapy. And I would hypothesize that there's some kind of minimization or invalidation that goes on in your head. Because right after therapy, you're like, oh, shit, I forgot to say this, that, and the other. I can't wait for my next session where I can finally say those things. And then after that, it's like we go through the cycle, right? And then you go into the like, well, I mean, I am doing okay. Or somebody else maybe could utilize the therapy time better. Or if I'm not even remember what I'm, what I want to say, is it even worthwhile, right? I don't know what the conversation that you're having sounds like, but my guess would be it's something like that. And so that brings us around to maybe I don't even need therapy and I should probably shouldn't go and I'm just going to mess it up. Or I don't know. It sounds like some kind of personal shit talking or negative thought cycles that we're caught in. And so I would definitely talk to your therapist about this because as always, I only know the short amount of information that you gave me and your therapist is going to have a, a like a fuller picture of what's going on with you and might be able to ask some other questions about like, you know, not just the conversation that you're having with yourself, but what are your thoughts right after therapy, thinking that you can't wait for the next one? You know, what's the thought process around that? And then moving forward to the Tuesday, the Monday, Tuesday, thinking that you don't really need it or that you shouldn't go anymore, what's the thought process around there? And is there anything that happens in between to cause that? Because that's what they're going to try to dig into. That's what we're trying to figure out, right? But I think it has to do with the way that we talk to ourselves about it. And I know I've heard this over and over, week after week, year after year, as I've been online, so many people think, you know what, I'm not really worthy of getting help, or I'm not sick enough to get help. I hear that all the time. Well, it's not that bad. And I'm always, I always fall back to the same answer. And that is, we don't want to wait till it's that bad. Think of it when it comes to our physical health. If I wait to get help or put it off or don't go regularly or stop my antibiotics right before I'm done or wait until I have pneumonia before I see the doctor, it's going to be harder for them to help us get better and it's going to take longer. Therapy is no different. The sooner we go in to talk to someone, the better. The easier it will be for us to change. The better able they'll be to meet us where we're at and help us and push us through into, you know, us feeling better, being able to place boundaries or improve our relationships or stop the negative thought cycles and all that stuff. And so anyways, I'm just, I'm curious about that. My hypothesis is that it's something to do with the way that you're talking to yourself about it, some of that minimization and validation. And that's what kind of gets us in the cycle. I think we're riding the high of therapy for a couple of days after, especially because you feel like you forgot to say certain things, which let's be honest, we all do. And so you're like, oh, I can't wait to get back in. I need to say these things. And we're also like, feeling the benefit of therapy. As that wears off, we're like, oh, we start getting into those old thought patterns. But bring it up with your therapist. They'll have other questions to ask and other follow-ups and ways that we, you know, can better understand this so that we combat it. But I just want you to know you're not alone. This is incredibly common. Like I said, there were a ton of comments below and I've heard things over the years, a million different ways that we can think about this. But a lot of us get caught in this cycle in between our therapy sessions. And there's usually a reason behind it. So be curious, not judgmental about it. With that, let's move into question number two. This question says, Dear Katie, my therapist recently pointed out to me that I always seem very tense during our sessions. 
I've been going for a year, but I still feel my heart pounding as if I'm about to give a presentation or be tested whenever I'm on my way to my appointment. Hmm. I think the anxiety and nervousness mostly comes from me being uncomfortable with so much attention in this one-on-one setting. Very common. In conversations, I usually make sure that the other person talks a lot and I only listen and ask the occasional question. That's interesting. Whenever the attention is pointed at me, I get very overwhelmed and unsure of what to say, and I just want the situation to be over. My therapist asked me to think about what we can both do to make it easier and more comfortable for me, but I just can't think of anything that would help because the situation itself already makes me uncomfortable. I was wondering if you had any suggestions. They would be very much appreciated. Thank you so much. I thought this was very interesting. And it's incredibly common, especially those of us who are really hard on ourselves, have a lot of anxiety or depression, um, or just more of an introvert on that, you know, that kind of sliding scale of introvert extrovert, we can find ourselves not liking the attention. I hear this a lot with my patients who are about to graduate and they have to walk up on stage and they're like, or um, someone who's going to get married or even people who know they're like receiving an award for something or have to give a presentation at school or work, they can feel very overwhelmed. Like you said, I feel like I'm about to give a presentation or be tested. I would talk more with your therapist about this. And part of me wonders, and I'm just hypothesizing here. Part of me wonders if you feel like you have to have all the answers and maybe those answers have to be right. Be very curious about how critical you are of yourself while you're in therapy or in life in general. And if you're ever asked questions, do you feel like you have to give just the right answer. I also then, my brain goes into, I wonder if people pleasing plays a role. Do we struggle with boundaries? And the issue being that we want everybody to like us and we want to make everybody else happy because if they're happy, then that can in some ways assuage our anxiety. I don't know. That's where my people pleasing comes from for me is to make my anxiety calm down. And so maybe that's where this is coming from. And the fact that therapy, it doesn't really work that way, right? You can't like please your therapist. I mean, we do get excited when you use your tools outside of therapy and tell us about them. We're like, yay. Or there's like accomplishments or goals that we meet. That's awesome. But overall in the day-to-day therapy sessions, we're just there to listen and help support and guide you. Right. And so maybe that's it. These are just some of my thoughts. Um, And I guess I would, my homework to you would be to consider, because you have some ideas, right? You don't think you don't like that one-on-one attention. I'd also be interested in the where what purpose you think your anxiety serves in this situation, in in that exact you know scenario. What are you worried about? Because anxiety is uncontrollable worry. So, what do you think is going to happen? take some time and think about that. Maybe you don't even know because you haven't taken, you know, we haven't thought about it that way. But I'd want you to dive into that because I'm interested in this, how you said in conversations, you usually make sure the other person talks a lot and you only listen and ask the occasional question. So it sounds like you're not comfortable talking, period. And I'm wondering why. Uh, my gut reaction thinks that there's something some, something in the way that you talk to yourself about how you're not important enough, like nobody cares what I have to say, or I'm just going to say something wrong, or everything that I am talking about is stupid. All of that to me comes out of like this negative self-talk. And then I'm curious about like maybe where you've heard those messages before from parents, bullies at school, maybe a shitty teacher or coach. I don't know. You know, anyway, I have a lot of thoughts, but the fact that you're aware that you don't like the one-on-one attention and that you usually don't talk a lot in conversations, you realize you said in conversations, which means they go both ways. You make sure the other person talks more and you only listen and ask the occasional question, right? That's interesting. That's not really a conversation. (laughs) You're almost like the therapist there. You're not really talking. You listen and you ask questions. That is really my role in therapy. And so I'm curious about that and what you tell yourself about you sharing, because I think that all ties into why this is so uncomfortable. And my ideas on how to make this better is to better understand it. It's like I talk about this in my book, Traumatized, but it's uh, Chesterton's Fence is a kind of an analogy or a what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It's like a, a story that you learn something out like a fable. I don't know. Anyway. Chesterton's fence is essentially the 
the key learning from it is that we can't remove something that we don't first understand. And I love to apply this to therapy because this is your Chesterton's fence, this inability or discomfort in therapy, but we can't stop doing it. If we first don't understand why it's there, right? And the, if you guys don't know Chesterton's fence, the the like learning is, or the story goes, that these two guys are walking along this one guy's property and they see this little chunk of fence. It doesn't connect to any other fence. It's not actually doing the job of a fence because people could just walk right around it, right? It's just this little chunk of fence. And the one guy who doesn't own that property says to the man who owns the property, well, why don't we just get rid of that? That's Why is that even there? It's not even doing anything. Let's just remove it. And the guy who owns it says, if you can tell me what purpose it serves or doesn't serve, then and only then when we remove that piece of fence. And the way that I apply this here is that we can't get rid of our anxiety and nervousness in therapy until we understand it. Because you can't just rip something out that you don't understand. Because what if that fence is the beginning and end of like an electronic fence? And if we rip it out, then that whole fence falls down. Or what if that fence is there because it, I don't know, let's say it's a really, really old piece of fence and it has some like sentimental value. Or maybe it's a marker for where some property begins and another property ends. There could be a million different reasons. We just don't know, right? And I know that might be a silly analogy and you might be like, Katie, this is like a fence and we're talking anxiety and nervousness, but it's the same principles. And I think it applies across both where I know we want to get rid of it. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it feels like it's getting in our way of us getting any better, but we have to understand it first because in the understanding, there will come our answer of how we remove it right? So if it's people pleasing, then maybe we need to talk more about boundaries with our therapist. Maybe we need to read about it more. I actually have a boundaries workshop that is happening this January. You can click the link in the description and sign up now. Um, It's the, I forget which days, it's two Fridays, the 13th. Oh, I just realized it's a Friday the 13th. I love, I love 13th. My birthday is on the 13th. The January 6th and January 13th, it's going to be a workshop all about boundaries. We're going to talk about what they are, how to place them, where they need to be, where they don't need to be. We'll also discuss how to talk about them in relationships and what to do if someone doesn't respect our boundaries. Um, All that and much more. Sign up now by clicking the link in the description. But boundaries could be a component for you because I have a feeling it may have to do with people pleasing and not feeling comfortable taking up any space. I have questions about that. So just be curious, not judgmental as we figure out what role this Chesterton's fence plays for us. Then and only then can we remove it. I hope that makes sense. Okay, let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. I wanted to preface this with saying that I am not in any immediate danger. My wife and I have a safety plan in place right now, so I'm not really ever alone. I would rather not disclose the specifics of my illness online, but I will say that it's been getting progressively worse lately. My wife wants me to check myself in, but I really don't want to. I've been hospitalized before, and it was mostly voluntary. I say mostly because my therapist at the time said during one of our sessions, okay, you should check yourself in. Otherwise, I'll have to make a phone call that I don't want to. I'm not mad for her for that. I trust her implicitly. However, I was the only one there who wasn't on a legal hold. That happens. Could you explain to me from a mental health professional perspective, what's the difference between voluntary inpatient versus involuntary inpatient? I'm scared it won't be taken seriously if I check myself in. That's not true, but we'll talk about it. Like I'm well enough to understand that I'm not doing so great. So how bad could I really be doing? You know what I mean? And on the other hand, I suppose that I can't very well wait until I can't make it, take it anymore. I hope this makes sense. And thank you for everything you do. Your channel has helped me so much. I'm so glad. Um, okay. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To be honest... When it comes to the treatment that you receive when you're hospitalized, there's no difference between voluntary and involuntary inpatient. And if anybody's confused about those terms, voluntary means I show up on my own, of my own free will as a human to the hospital and I check myself in. That's voluntary. I'm volunteering, kind of think of it that way. Then if my therapist calls um, the pet team or, you know, has to force me in maybe the police are called depends on the situation hopefully you have a pet team that stands for a psychological evaluation team we had them in LA I don't know if we have them in Austin yet I'm still waiting to hear if I got my license I sent in all my paperwork I'm just kind of waiting um but either way they come and assess and then if they think you're a danger to yourself or others then they take you to the hospital and you are sometimes handcuffed I hate it but it's just unfortunately the way a lot of systems work and you're forced into the hospital on a 72-hour hold, otherwise known as a 5150. Different countries have different numbers that go along with it, but essentially that's involuntary, meaning you did not volunteer. Someone like forced it upon you, okay? I do not like involuntary holds. I don't like the process. Like I said, the handcuffs and the picking you up on an ambulance, it can cost you more money, Um the people assessing you aren't always, I mean, if you have a pet team, they're great, but a lot of times, no offense to police officers or, you know, EMTs or people like that, but they're not always fully trained and it can be really difficult for them to make proper assessments. Sometimes they can, but sometimes they just always err on the side of like, let's let them go when someone really needs help or over, you know, being a little over eager. But either way, the treatment in the hospital is no different. The, the main difference, so the treatment itself remains the same. The difference is that someone who's on an involuntary hold can't just leave. And voluntary, depending on where you're at and what state or country you're in, may be able to check themselves out. Sometimes not. Some hospitals will require, even when you voluntarily show up, to sign into a 72-hour hold. So ask them about that. You need to be informed. So you might have to be there for at least 72 hours. And I know I've heard from many of you over the years, I've also had patients um, in the past tell me that they went for a 72 hour hold and they were held for like four or five days or a week, something like that. So just know that even though it says 72 hour hold, it sometimes is much, much longer. Um, Yeah, but the treatment in is just the same. Like you said, you were the only one who was voluntary when you were there last. Um but you did the same things as they did, right? And depending on the hospital and where you're at, they're going to have different rules and regulations. I mean, usually for us, the, the hospital I worked for, it was a locked ward. So I don't know if we had, I don't think at the time, I don't remember any voluntary people. A lot of them were people who had psychotic breaks or attempted to harm themselves or someone else. Um, and so they were on the the you know involuntary hold. But the treatment is all the same, but because ours was locked, if they were to sign up, they sign up for at least three days and they could be released after 72 hours, like on the dock. We were pretty quick at making sure they could get out if they needed to or stay if they needed to. But most hospitals want to move you through quickly, but I've heard from a lot of you, they don't. So overall, those are the differences. Um, and I want to address this, this component at the end where the person said that I'm scared I won't be taken seriously if I check myself in. Yes, you're taken seriously. It's still a big deal. Um, and the fact you're even considering that goes to show that you're needing the support. I wish there was a better option for you. I think like a day program or something could potentially be better. I don't know how it is where you are, but I just, for the life of me, cannot support um, hospitalization programs. It's never that therapeutic. It can be almost traumatic. I'm sure there are good ones out there. If there are, let, let us know in the comments. Um, but I find it really difficult because from my experience with my patients and from you know our community is that it can be really traumatizing, especially when it's involuntary and even voluntarily taking ourselves in. You can be, if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can, you're in the same ward with people who have psychotic breaks, um, people who 
are, you know, in a manic episode or throwing things. It can be all sorts of different types of people. It's not like they have one for people who have eating disorders or self-injury or suicide. It's just all together. So I don't love that. And the, the therapeutic component of it is usually lacking. I'm not talking shit on all hospitals. I just think that therapeutic day programs to me just tend to be better. They tend to be more therapeutic. And so if you have that option, I would encourage you to look into it. Otherwise, that's really the difference. There's no real difference. And how you said that, how bad could it really be if you're, if you like are aware that you're not doing great? It's not good. You just have the insight and that's an amazing step. And that's an amazing gift for all the work you've probably put into yourself. Let's not, you know, ignore that and let's not take that for granted. Let's use that insight to help us get better. Okay. You got this. Let's move into question number four. And this question says, Hi, Katie, I have complex PTSD and I have seen my therapist for over a year. A few months ago, we started spreading my sessions out every other week to once a month. We've recently started doing every week again because I suddenly started getting worse. Could this be a trauma response? And how do I allow myself to continue to heal and not relapse when I start seeing my therapist less? Thanks for all that you do. This is a great question. And there's quite a few potential reasons that we can be doing this. There's also a comment on this too. So we'll get into that next. But the first thing about lessening sessions and then relapsing or feeling like we're getting worse and feeling like then we need to see our therapist more. The first, my first gut reaction, and maybe it's because I work with a lot of borderline uh, personality disorder patients or people who have BPD. I'm very curious about your attachment to your therapist. And if this spreading out of sessions starts to feel like abandonment, or if it triggers something inside of you where you start to be worried about being left alone, or I don't know, rejected, or I don't know what story you might tell yourself, but I'm just using some words in case one of those rings more true to you. But I've had that happen with a lot of my patients who have BPD or eating disorders or some other, you know, mental illness. When we start lessening our sessions, then they start feeling like I'm leaving them and that it can be really scary and it can trigger a relapse. And it's really, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't want you to feel like if that is the case, that something's bad or you're doing something the wrong way. It's just helpful information. Cause then as your therapist, I take that into consideration. I'm like, okay, interesting. So maybe instead of working specifically on these, the traumas we've been working on, now we need to talk a little bit more about attachment and do some homework about abandonment, rejection, shame, seeing where this is coming from, finding ways to calm that like worry, I guess, or that fear response that we're having. So that's one kind of part that this could be, that's where this could be coming from. But then, so, okay, so there's that and that worry about attachment. I wonder about that. The trauma response could be part of it, but I would tie that I, a normal trauma response is more like hypervigilance, avoiding things that remind us of those things. Um, we, but it, the component of not wanting to leave someone or not wanting a therapist to give space between sessions has more to do with the, the attachment or the, um, connection that we have with our therapist. It doesn't tie directly to like PTSD but it could tie to our childhood trauma. Does that make sense? Meaning that if something happened in our childhood that affected the way that we connect with other people, then that's going to follow us into adulthood until we work it through. And so if we're finding this coming up and we have these intense fears, I'd be interested in what your relapse is. Because if the relapse is, you know, like suicidal thoughts, or I'm curious what's going on in your mind when we have this relapse, because if we start getting worse, is it to get our therapist back? I'm just curious. And I don't know if you can be honest with yourself and answer that question, but it's inc- it's so incredibly common. I hope I'm doing a decent job of explaining kind of the whys behind it. And so, okay, so how do I allow myself to continue to heal and not relapse? I honestly believe if we think it's coming from the childhood trauma attachment type of thing, then I believe in your child work is where your healing's at. And because this keeps happening, my gut tells me that there's something that inner child you hasn't been able to speak up about and feel heard about. And so, you know, he or she keeps coming to the forefront and causing wreaking havoc, aka a relapse, um, in order to keep trying to give you an opportunity to get those needs met. Does that make sense? It's almost like we have no other way of getting needs met when we're a kid other than tantruming. 
And so little you can be throwing a tantrum. That's why we relapse. And then maybe the need met is I have someone who's consistent with me. I have an adult who's consistent, you know, otherwise known as your therapist. So just be curious with yourself about what purpose you think this serves for you. If there is any attachment kind of thing there, do we miss our therapist? Do we wish our therapist was like our best friend or our mom or our sister or our brother? Like, do we have those kinds of thoughts about them? Um, doing that inner child work and also being curious, not judgmental about where it's coming from for you will really help you continue to heal and prevent these relapses from happening over and over. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that says similar question. I've been seeing my therapist for a year and a half. And lately I haven't had a lot to talk about that I need help with as I've come a long way. Congratulations. We have now spread the sessions out every eight weeks. And I know that I don't need to see her anymore, but I'm just not feeling ready to stop completely. We both agreed on every two months to just see how that feels and to go from there. I know I can't see her forever, especially when I'm doing so well, but I just love her and I don't feel ready to lose her. How can I make this easier to handle? Does it just get easier over time if we just keep spacing sessions? I suppose I'm asking how can you really move on from your therapist? I always want to see her. Part of it is attachment. But just like I said to the first component of this, you'll have to be curious about where this is coming from for you. There's no judgment. We all need people and need connection. It's part of like the human condition. So don't feel any pressure to cut and run. You can also cut and run... (laughs) on another side of attachment when we have more of an anxious or avoidant style of attachment. And so I think the truth about this is that you're just not ready to lose her and that's okay. I think the grieving process can sometimes, you know, take time, but I would wonder, part of me, if I was your therapist, this is what I would do. I would say, how about we stop sessions just for, you know, 10 weeks. So it'd be two more weeks past what you're used to and know that you can always call me if you want to make another appointment. Let's just see how it goes. Let's see how we do, right? Is the eight weeks, because eight weeks is a long time, like every two months, it's like you don't really need the therapy, but there's something about that relationship that you're still craving. And I'm curious about it. Maybe it's that inner child stuff. Maybe we felt neglected as a kid and having this consistent person in our life has been incredibly healing. I also don't think it's terrible. I know this might go against things I've said in the past, but I don't think it's terrible to check in with a therapist every so often. I don't think we need to go to a therapist consistently every week for the rest of our lives. You know, that's expensive, difficult. And frankly, I would assume the therapy isn't really helping us that much because we're still needing it, right? But if we're going every few months just to check in, I don't think there's anything really wrong with that. I think that's almost just like going to your doctor for a checkup. You know, we can pop back into our therapist for a checkup whenever we need. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But I'm more curious about where it's coming from. Because if it's not just like, oh, I just look forward to the check-ins, it helps keep me on track. It's more about I'm not ready to lose her. So are there people you've lost in the past? What do we tell ourselves about relationships ending? Have we ever dealt with relationships ending in a healthy way? Has anybody ever given us an opportunity to process them and deal with them in a healthy way. Those are kind of the questions that I have for you. And I guess to answer your question, how can I make this easier to handle? Be kind with yourself. I'd encourage you to, I mean, I think there's some inner child stuff here, but maybe it's just me. I'd encourage you to write some letters back and forth, or even just journal, offering yourself some love and compassion as you process the relationship ending. Ending therapy, even if it's because we're doing great, can be difficult because that relationship is really valuable and there are things that we're going to miss about it. And I might encourage you to ask your therapist if you can go over, and you might have already done this, but go over all of the things, all the progress you've made together. Being reminded of how far we've come and what we've done together can be kind of a nice, I don't know, a nice way to go out to like finish the sessions for a while. It can remind us of our strength and our endurance and all the things that we've been able to do and how powerful the relationship was. And it can just help us feel good about it and possibly good about ending for a while. But yeah, that's, it does get easier over time. You can just keep spacing out the sessions. I don't think you have to just stop. Um, And I also don't think there's anything wrong with checking in every so often. Um, it'd be more, I'd be more inclined to say that we don't always have a standing appointment. And if that, even me saying that triggers something in you, then I'd be very curious about how important consistency is 
had there been people in your life who weren't consistent? Do you see what I mean? If we can dig into this a little, we can figure out kind of more of where it's coming from. And that might be a little bit of the work that's left. Um, like my thoughts are, it could be attachment based, which could, could do some, like inner child work. It could be just the consistency that that's really important. It could be that we don't have anybody else in our life that we get to talk to about these things. It could be grief and wanting to grieve the loss of the relationship. See, so it could come from a lot of different places. Um, you'd have to let me know, but do some thinking on it. You know, give yourself a, the space and time to consider where you think it's coming from and then talk to your therapist about it. Okay. Okay, let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, does the concept of letting ourselves feel emotions instead of avoiding them also indicate that we deserve to experience them? Hmm particularly for a negative for negative emotions such as shame and guilt say we confront whatever makes us feel this way do we have to feel guilty or ashamed because we are presumably a quote-unquote bad person and deserve to or are the emotions just neutral do those feelings confirm something about us such as the aforementioned shame confirming that we're bad people is it possible to just experience emotions with feeling like they mean something about us and we can just objectively focus on the trigger of that emotion i know this is pretty abstract and i hope it makes sense it totally makes sense in summation what i'm hearing from them is that can we just feel the emotions without accepting them as not just part of who we are but saying something about us and the truth is that's the ideal Yes, it's difficult, but that's really the goal because you know how we talk about like thoughts are just thoughts. And I've said that over and over, like thoughts are just thoughts. They're not facts. Feelings are just the same. So the the idea is, so you guys know that I do a lot of cognitive behavioral or CBT therapy and dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you don't know them, there's it's okay. DBT is essentially CBT with an added component of mindfulness and emotion regulation, okay? But they work on much of the same foundation. So in CBT specifically, we talk a lot about the fact that we have thoughts all the time, right? Thoughts flying in my head all day long. And I can have them and let them go, or I can have a thought and then I have a feeling about it, right? I had this thought. I was embarrassed, right? We have a thought about something that happened. I'm embarrassed by it. I had a feeling. It happens so quick. We sometimes don't even notice that they're different thoughts and feelings, but they're different. Thoughts are just thoughts. We can let them come and go. We can have a thought, have a feeling about it, let it go. Or we can have a thought, a feeling, and a behavior, meaning then I do something. And then it goes back around, poo And we get caught in this cycle of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and without being aware, that cycle can happen, boom, in the blink of an eye. And it can feel very out of control, right? Because then we're like, well, because let's say we're, we're crying and we canceled plans and someone asks us and we're like, well, I just got caught up in this old memory of remember that time? And we can like go and go and go and go down this rabbit hole of this sad thing that happened. And then I just didn't feel like being around people because I had a thought, I had a feeling, and then I did something about it. Canceled plans. I stayed at home right? So feelings do not confirm something about us. Feelings are just feelings like thoughts. They become more impactful on our life when we take action because of them, when we do a behavior. Is this making sense? I hope so. Let me dig back into the question to make sure I'm not getting completely off course. So does the concept of letting ourselves feel emotions instead of avoiding them also indicate that we deserve to experience them. No, feeling our emotions means that instead of letting them happen to us, because sometimes when we're so disconnected, so here's a big thing in therapy, we can be so disconnected from ourselves, right? Head from body. We can have all of these these 
thoughts or things that are happening, we can numb out so hardcore and want to stuff things down. You know, that disconnect gets so intense that we don't even, we aren't even able to acknowledge any of the feelings, meaning that we can be having these thoughts, feelings, and behaviors or actions all the time. And it's almost like we're on autopilot, just letting it go. Okay. Are you following? And so that's why as a part of cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT, we try to first start noticing those thoughts and we do what's called thought tracking. And I've talked about this a lot in general where I'm like, pay attention to what you say to yourself. That's essentially thought tracking. It's a fancy way of just saying, don't let it happen and be cut like be on autopilot. Pay attention. What thoughts are you having? Right. And so by doing that, then we say it's okay to feel those emotions. It doesn't mean that they're like they're they say something about us that they're factual it means that some we had these thoughts and we have a feeling associated with it that's okay we can feel some kind of way i can feel sad i can feel mad i can feel uh you know excited exhilarated i can feel lethargic irritated right i can feel those things i don't always have to take action sometimes i do sometimes if i'm feeling irritated i need to tell someone that I don't, you know, if you keep talking to me that way, I'm going to leave. I have to hold a boundary. I might want to take that healthy action. Having thoughts, feelings, actions isn't a bad thing. We just want to be able to pick and choose which ones we, you know, engage with and which ones we take action on so that we're not doing things without thinking about it. Does that make sense? Because otherwise we're just, like I said, like on autopilot, acting out of potentially old patterns that aren't helping us anymore. Meaning we could be acting out the same way our family did growing up and we don't like that. Or we could be becoming emotionally unavailable just like our mother was, or I don't know. But that's why it's important for us just to be aware. And that awareness allows for this magical thing called choice. And that's what therapy is really about is giving ourselves the space to choose to act differently. Does it mean that the feelings say something bad about us? No, it means a feeling is just a feeling and we have every right to feel it because that's our experience. But it's when we start to take action that things can, our life can be affected, right? And so we just want to be aware of them. And if we're having a certain feeling all the time, like I feel irritated all the time, I'd be curious what those thoughts are. And as your therapist, I want to know, you know, what you're spending your time doing and are we engaging in those negative thought cycles and how come we're caught in that? And what are we telling ourselves about it? You know, that's when we can, we work on changing those, hence like bridge statements and things that I've talked about over the years. That's how we work to change and get out of maybe a negative thought, feeling, behavior cycle. That makes sense. I hope that makes sense. I'm sorry if it doesn't feel free to ask again. Okay. Move on to number six. This question says, hi, Katie, I have a question about alexithymia, which means you're not able to recognize your own emotions, okay? I can only recognize basic emotions like happiness, sadness, and anger, but only if they're very strong. Most of the time I'm living in a neutral place. I can tell what my thought, or I can tell I am feeling, I can tell what I'm feeling by my thoughts. Sorry, you guys. I just can't feel the emotion, I've tried to sit and feel something, but I just can't. Is there a way to force myself to feel emotions or should I just give up and learn to tell emotions by my thought patterns? For context, I have not had any trauma, so it's not caused by that. I've always been this way, so I didn't lose the ability. Thank you for everything that you do. You help so many people. And there's a comment on this as well that I'll get into second, but let's jump into this. Now, with alexithymia, as far as I know, and I could probably dig into more intensive research, but there's no, we don't really know how to cure it or work with it or manage it. The fact that you can feel it, you you like, you can tell what emotion you're experiencing by your thought patterns. To me, if, if I was your, your therapist and you were my patient, I'd be like, that's awesome. Let's work with that because I can work with that, right? You have insight. I think the struggle is when we don't have any insight and we're like, I feel nothing. And I don't know, you know, we don't have any way to tap in, but you kind of like we're talking about the thoughts, feelings, actions, right? You have those thoughts and you're aware of them. And if we tap in and we focus in from that, you can extrapolate what the feelings would be, even though you aren't able to recognize it on its own. So I think that's great. I would keep using that as a tool. I don't think there's really a way to force yourself to feel emotions. 
if you just don't have it, then you just don't have it. We could do some, like I might have you do some exercises just to test and see. Like for a lot of my patients, especially my, you said there's no trauma, but a lot of my trauma patients will tell me that it's, you know, um, they don't even know what they're feeling. It feels like a million things at once. And it's kind of overwhelming or we're completely numbed out and we're like, Boo, I don't think, feel anything. I have people tell me in my office, I'm like, how do your feet feel? How do your legs feel? How does your you know butt sitting in that chair feel? And I know that sounds really tedious and silly, but sometimes just tapping into our body. I also have patients that are like, I don't want to be in my body. This is too much. Blah, 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 abort mission. And they dissociate. But if you're able, if it's not triggering, you can pull the attention into your body and see if your body tells you. Because sometimes when our brain can't process it, our body can tell us. Do we feel tense? Do we feel on edge? Do we feel like excitement? I don't know. You know, maybe that's another clue in another way. So I might have you try to do that. And then I might even have you just attempt looking at like feelings, feelings, wheels or feelings charts and explain some to me to see if, if that's where the, you know, the disconnect is. But in this specific case of the person who asked this question, I believe that I would use the fact that your thought patterns tell you, I would use that as a, an amazing tool because you have that information and insight and it can really be helpful. I don't think there's any reason that you have to force something, especially if you have alexithymia, right? I feel like we're kind of fighting against ourselves. And sometimes I think it's better for us to work with, not against our brains. So the fact that you have that, let's, let's grow that. Let's like build that muscle so that we're able to identify more quickly and, you know, move on through our life. Okay. Now there was a comment on this as, as an add-on, how can you tell apart alexithymia as part of autism from a general lack of guidance or teaching about emotions as a child? And if it's part of autism, can identifying feelings ever be learned or are we wired too differently to ever really just know how we feel? I would assume this differs from one autistic person to another. But when it comes to alexithymia as part of autism, if you didn't know a lot of people who have autism are unable to feel their emotions as well, it, but not everybody, but it can be part of it. Um, the general lack of guidance and teaching, it's different because there's more, this is going to sound weird, but when it comes to the general lack or guidance of teaching about emotions as a child, there's usually um, a lot of defense mechanisms that will come up. In my autistic patients and people that I talk to in our community, it's more of a just a, I try really hard and it doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like when, uh, this is a really bad example, you guys, but let's say someone's telling me that I, they're making me try to do tricks with a hockey puck and a hockey stick. I just can't. I don't know how. I, I don't have, no one's ever taught me, but someone could work with me and they could teach me and I could get better right? So when it comes to someone who doesn't have the guidance or teaching about emotions, working with a therapist and having homework about writing things out and working to identify and me telling them how it feels in my body, me asking them if they're able to identify one thing, um, ha you know, doing the homework, it'll get better. People with autism and alexithymia, it doesn't get better. It, it's the homework is impossible. When I ask them to do it, it's like they're going to try their best, but they can't. And I think as a therapist, that can feel very nuanced and it can take us a little while to tease it out. But overall, there's just a big difference. There's a difference between like, I can kind of do it and then, I don't know, like with people who don't have, um, weren't taught emotions as a child, I start off usually with like primary emotions, things like, um, you know, joy, fear, disgust, those things to let them see if they can tap into those. And sometimes like happiness or joy is an easier one for people to attach to. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's easier for us to be fearful. But through doing that, you can kind of see where someone is able to and others just, it's almost like it does not compute. You know, that'd be like telling someone to do the hockey puck and hockey stick, uh, you know, tricks without the stick. And they're like, I can't, right? Our brain just works differently. And so that's really how I would tell. And it says, if it is part of autism, can identifying feelings ever be learned? I think we can use, it depends. Everybody's going to be different. I hate to throw every autistic person into the same bucket. So know that just take this with a grain of salt, but I would always try to work with our brain. So there's certain ways 
the things are going to, we're going to be more interested in specific things, right? I might encourage my patients, for instance, um, I remember there's a member of our community who was talking about one of their interests was in these certain comic books. Okay. They were autistic and they would focus so intensely. And it was like, it was their thing. And they could talk to you about all the different characters. I might ask about those characters and how they thought they might feel in a situation. Now it's still going to be tricky. And for my autistic folks out there, they're like, but it's hard to read those situations. And I don't really know. And then we're doing masking and we're doing all these things. Everybody's going to be different, but I might try to help them understand in certain situations using an item or a specific topic that is of intense interest. I'd use that, again, working with, not against our brains, to teach about it. But I always have this resistance. I don't know if anybody else feels this way. I have this resistance to trying to force autistic people to be like non-autistic people when if we're able to do what we need to do in our life and we can function in our life doing, you know, interacting with people, we feel okay. I know some people don't, and then we can work on those things. But if they're, if overall we're happy and everything's moving and grooving, then why do you have to be like me? I feel like that's like saying something's wrong with you, which is not the case, right? And so I'd rather work with your brain in a way that makes you feel good and make your life better versus telling you that you need to in order to be more like me. Does that make sense? I hope I'm making sense. But anyways, I think that you can learn about feelings from a purely educational standpoint, what a feeling looks like and feels like mostly. But we all know it's going to be very different to experience it personally. So I do think we can learn it, but I don't know if we'll ever be able to actually acknowledge the feeling in ourselves. That might just be something we we don't, like again, we don't have that hockey stick, but we can't do that trick. So I hope that makes sense, you guys. And let me know, I'm not trying to be offensive. If I offended anyone, that's never my goal. I'm just trying to talk it out with you and kind of my thought process. And I hope that that's okay. But if you want any, if you have any corrections, you let me know. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, how does one deal without their therapist for a few months while they're on maternity leave? Ugh. I haven't had any kids, but I've had a lot of members of our community go through this. I've been in therapy for about eight months now, and I'm finally starting to be open with her. And I started talking a little about past sexual abuse and self-harm. She contacted me for safety in between sessions, and she kind of did when she went on leave, but I worry that I will self-harm during this time still. What happens if you tell your therapist that you did self-harm when you were contacted for safety? What's the only goal? Oh, that's the only goal she has for me while she's on leave. We were supposed to come up with a safety plan and alternatives, but she went into labor early and didn't have our last session. Oh, should have done it before. Also, why do I always seem to want to talk to her, but also want to quit therapy at the same time? Any advice? Love this question. Okay. First of all, I would encourage you, well, let's answer your first question. What happens if you tell them that you did self-harm? They're probably going to ask you if you need to go to the hospital or if you're, you know, if you're actively suicidal, they're going to assess you. I've had patients tell me that they've self-harmed when they're on safety watch and I just want to make sure that they're okay. I want to ask, you know, I ask about it and I'm annoyed that you don't have a safety plan. Is that what you said? Yeah, you didn't have a safety plan or alternatives. Ugh. I don't know how you're doing right now because we know we can't pull it, put a safety plan together when we're actively struggling. But if you ever feel you come out of this, I want you to create one because that was just horrible that she didn't do that like right away. Like if I found out I was pregnant, I'd start doing them for everybody so that they were just there. Um, and for alternatives, I want you to watch my video, 25 Coping Skills. There are some that are process-based, some that are distraction-based. I've talked about this in the past, but it's been a little while. Sometimes we need the distraction ones in order to get us to a place where we could do the process-based ones, just FYI. So make sure you try some of those distraction ones until you feel like you're okay enough to maybe journal or maybe reach out to another support, like a friend or a family member or someone that you can trust. Um, yeah, let's give those a go, okay? And then um, the only goal that she had for you on on leave was just not to self-injure. The, that's not helpful. Um, hmm. I might encourage you to ugh, poop. Well, I do have my inner child workshop. There's also a ton of my inner child videos for free. If you can't afford the workshop, I totally understand. Um, watch some of that content or 
purchase that workshop and work through that because I think they'll be, because the past sexual abuse and self-harm to me feels like that could really be beneficial to you. I also have my book Traumatized and Are You Okay? My first book, they're both available in your libraries. And if they happen to be out, you can ask them for them and they will order more. Um, so you don't have to purchase. And they are, there's tons of homework in there. So you can use that. I really want you to have like a book or uh, some worksheets and things to work on because I feel like you need that time that you had every week to see her. I want you to hold that time for your therapeutic work so you don't feel like you're out of sync because I think that inconsistency and this kind of maybe a little bit of fear of abandonment or attachment stuff that might be coming up um, might be what's triggering this self-harm. Um, yeah, so get you, let's get you some of those supports. Okay, so I answered that first portion of the question. Okay. And then the final is also, why do I always seem to want to talk to her, but also want to quit therapy at the same time? Any advice? I think we do that kind of push pull because therapy, it feels unnatural, right? To talk to a stranger about all of our deepest, darkest secrets and like all the things we don't tell anybody because we have like shame or embarrassment associated with them. Then we go into a stranger and we actually pay them. It feels very weird. And letting someone in and get that close comes with this like discomfort of like, oh, it's so helpful. And I really want to talk to them. Oh my God, if I get, they get too close, I'm going to have to push them away. And especially if we have any issues with attachment or abandonment, if we have a borderline personality disorder, BPD tendencies, we can do this push pull and it can feel, it just makes us feel very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of it really at the core has to do with our difficulty regulating our emotions. We can get dysregulated and we don't have any tools to help us feel like back to ourselves. Does that make sense? So I have a feeling that's kind of what's coming up for you in this situation. Completely normal. Happens, I feel like, with all of my patients. So be be patient with yourself. It will get better. But when she's back, we'll talk about that. And I think that's kind of the inner child work can also help that. But uh, I'm also like DBT could be helpful for you. But yeah, so that's something we can work on later. But for right now, it's more about safety, you having some homework and some you know, things to do and ways to to check in on yourself and, and do some of that kind of distraction work when you need to. I also, in my book, Traumatized, offer up the putting together like an impulse log. I think those could help you. Uh, you can check it out. It's essentially like, what day and time is it? What are the feelings that I'm wanting to express through doing this? What are some alternatives I can take? Um, yeah. And it just kind of slows us down so that we don't act impulsively, hence impulse log. Don't act impulsively and self-injure without at least trying some of our tools first. Okay. Keep me posted. Fingers crossed. You got this. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, I don't know how much of this is a question or if it's just ranting, but why do the bullies get so much space when talking about bullying? I'm thinking of various educational materials and information on the internet, etc. I was bullied for so long. My first memories are about how lonely I was as a preschooler or kindergartner, age four. I am so terribly damaged in my self-esteem because of this. But when you listen to professors, psychologists, or other experts, they very quickly get into talking about how the bully feels, how the bully feels later in life, who it is that can become a bully, etc. We don't talk like that about the perpetrator of other types of trauma. The victim is forgotten here, again. Like it's not why the bullying continued year after year. Of course, it's important to talk about why bullying occurs, but maybe not as intertwined as it often is in many areas. I don't want to try to understand my bullies anymore. I spent my whole life telling myself, they're just kids. They didn't know any better. Kids have a low capacity for empathy and understanding the consequences of their actions. They must have had a hard time at home, etc. I struggle so much with allowing myself to feel hurt because my entire upbringing consisted of not showing how hurtful the bully's words were. Don't let them win. Don't let them see you cry. I want to change this. Let those who are exposed to bullying be seen. Talk about what the consequences are. Talk about the actions to stop it. Talk about those who were bullied. Don't let the bullies get the focus in this arena as well. End of rant. <laughs> I agree with this. I, um, I, I've talked about this. I've told the story in the past, I'm sure. I don't see a ton of kids, you guys know, in my practice, but I have seen some teens in my years and a lot of them dealt with bullying. And I went to school many times to talk to teachers and principals and people to try to find a way to help them deal and to give them more assistance. And I have to be honest, uh, even private schools, like the bougiest schools in West LA, as well as the public schools, all the same. And it was all sucky answers and they didn't have any way to really manage it. And it always pissed me off. And I agree. I don't know why 
people go quickly into the reasons that bullies do it. I mean, we could attribute the same, to be honest, a lot of people who were abused go on to abuse. And I think that is essentially what bullies are. But I don't think people talk enough about how traumatizing this can be for people. And I feel like it's often kind of minimized, like everybody gets bullied. And I'm like, I don't think people understand the weight of it or the effects it can have. And so, I mean, I just agree with you. I think a lot of times we have to talk we have to talk more about it in a real way and validate people's experience versus what I think is happening is people try to, because it's kids on kids, people have a tough time kind of talking poorly about other children. But if a child's an asshole, a child's an asshole. I'm sorry. And you can't treat people that way. And I think a lot of it starts with the parents and the the children who are harmed. There's not enough support and I really don't know why this is how it's talked about. And I'm sorry if I have been one of those people who has added to that. I know I haven't talked about bullying a ton, but if I've ever done it and I've talked, you feel like too much, I'm sorry. I did not intend to, you know, minimize your experience. I think um, kind of like in the line of emotional abuse where we feel like people minimize it or we can even minimize it ourselves. I think it's really important, especially in these kind of areas where a lot of us struggle to accept or allow ourselves to feel hurt. I think it's even more important that we talk about it honestly. Do you know what I mean? And so anyways, um, and I know we always say like, don't let them win. Don't let them see you cry. That It's again, it's just shitty advice because schools and they don't, there's nothing, they don't do anything. And I'm not saying that, you know, teachers don't have enough on their plate or principals aren't doing enough. I'm just saying that at this day and this day and age, we should have more resources. It felt so shitty for me to go in with my patient who was having the hardest time of his life and essentially be told like, well, there's nothing we can do. Well, he should come and report it. And I'm like, well, when he does, the bullying gets worse. So then where are we at? You know, and there were no answers. And I'm, I'm, I'm just sorry. And I agree with you. And again, if I ever contributed to that, I'm sorry. Let's move on to our final question. Question number nine. This question says, hey, Katie, I am overweight and I think I might have binge eating disorder, but I'm nervous to talk to my therapist about it. I'm scared that anytime someone walks into a therapist's office saying, I want to lose weight, anorexia is assumed. Is this true? No. I know my problem is with overeating and not undereating, but as a therapist, how do you know? Okay. First of all, a therapist, you can tell them you want to lose weight, but I would argue that you shouldn't say that because I don't think that's our goal. Our goal is that I think I have a problem with food. I know it sucks to say it that way, doesn't it? But that's the truth. It's I, I know it, we can get so caught up in the weight, the losing and the gaining of weight. And I know, unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma in the health field overall for people who are heavier. I've heard from people in our community that there's a lot of, you know, judgments. And when you go to the doctor, even if something's really wrong, they're like, you just need to lose weight. And you're like, dude, something's wrong. Listen to me. I know my body, right? Um, And so my encouragement for you would be, instead of saying that you want to lose weight, You can say, I want to improve my relationship with food. I think I have an eating disorder because here's the kicker. Anorexia and binge eating disorder, they're pretty much the same. I know. I just blew your mind. Yes, the behaviors are different. Yes, maybe the results are different. However, they serve the same purpose. They give us something to focus on or to numb out with. It's a way for us to manage emotions that we don't know how to manage. And so It's not really about you trying to lose weight. It's like my hopefully next book called It's Not About the Fucking Food. It's not about the fucking food. It's not about binging or purging or losing weight or it's not about that. It's actually about what purpose it serves for you and why we're doing it. And so I don't assume that there's anorexia there. I don't assume anything about it. I assume that when my patients tell me that their weight is an issue or they have a problem with food, that we need to figure out where it's coming from and what purpose it serves. And that's where we can work on it. Um... Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it's overeating or undereating. A lot of times it comes from the same reason. I'm always more interested in the reason behind it, not really the behaviors. And so I encourage you to pick up the book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. I have it in my Amazon shop. You can just go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's there. It's a great book. Also, the intuitive eating workbook could be a great thing to do with your therapist or a dietitian. I'd encourage you to get both. Um, or get one, I guess you already have a therapist, so get a dietitian. Yeah, that's really 
those are my thoughts. I don't always, I don't assume anything when it comes to eating and food because everybody's experience is different. It serves a different purpose for everyone. And yeah, I would want to know more about when this started, how this is happening, when you find yourself eating more, eating less, you know, how do you feel moving your body? Do you even feel anything in your body? I'd have more questions. So don't think that there's going to be any assumptions, but you might want to ask your therapist if they feel able to help you with eating disorder stuff, because not every therapist is capable or specialized. And they might, you know, want to refer you to someone else, or they might want to do some of their own reading and research. Anyways, those are my thoughts. I encourage you to speak up and tell them about it, but I wouldn't even say you want to lose weight. Even if you do, you can talk about that later, but you can just say, I don't think I have a healthy relationship with food. I know that I binge and I, you can, then you can say, and I want to lose weight and talk about it because it's way, way more than that. Okay. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Don't forget to sign up for my boundaries workshop coming this January. It's going to be great. We're going to get to hang out. I'll do Q and A's if you're able to access it and hang out with us live, but it will be recorded so that you can access it later, especially if you weren't able to come live or if you want to go back and rewatch and re-listen just for more clarification, it will all be available to you. Can't wait to see you there. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you later. Bye.